hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, it's been a, a crazy couple of weeks. I'm going to be revising the shape of the podcast and I've been mapping it out. But this is a podcast with me. We have tea with guests and we talk about interesting ideas. Thank you everybody who supports me on the Patreon. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's helped me buy tea for all of my guests and it helps me do things for this podcast. I appreciate it very much. Everyone who emails me on alicerfraser at gmail.com or follows me on Twitter, also rad. I did uh, Will Anderson's podcast this week, Willosophy. Not that he needs um, you guys to listen, but it would be awesome if you could listen and send him an email and tell him how much you enjoyed it. That would be cool because it makes me look like I have lots of excellent, supportive listeners, which I do. So my guest this week uh, on the podcast is Nico Malian, who is a radio presenter and stand-up comedian. He runs the Green Lights Comedy Room in Sydney, and he's drinking English breakfast tea with milk, no sugar. Hello. Hello. You already said that before, but hello again for people who are listening. How are you? Um, That's my question to ask. Well, you know, keep it to yourself. Uh, so why do you drink tea with no sugar? Uh, because I feel like it's a movie thing. I've never seen anybody... Or like it's a thing people do because they've seen it in movies, you know. I've never seen anybody who's a serious tea drinker drink uh, tea with sugar. Do you feel that way about people who have sugar with coffee? No, because I have sugar with coffee. So there's, there's rules. There's exceptions to the rules. So basically you're saying if you do it, it's acceptable. And if somebody else does it, it's a weird thing that they must be doing. Not out of any native desire, but out of some sort of pretentiousness trying to copy something they've seen in a movie. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that how everyone lives their lives? Like, isn't... <laughs> No. Isn't it? No, uh, well... Like if... you're wearing suspenders right now. But if you saw someone else wearing suspenders who was doing stand-up mm. and they did a bad joke, you'd be like... Well, they're a complete hack, I reckon. Yes, but also there is an element here of I'm I'm a woman. Huh? So, okay, I'm wearing suspenders because I think they're fun. But if we t- if we look at um, fun, they're fun. They keep my pants up. Uh, <laughs> and that's the funnest thing of all. The funnest thing of all is keeping it in your pants, children. <laughs> um, no, I I'm ref- if if I'm on stage, I had not actually thought of that reference of the hack stand up on stage with, with wearing braces, right? But if I'm on stage and I'm I'm referencing that, the fact that I'm a woman means that people don't think I actually am that. All right. So then so it's if sort I of. I went on stage in a three-piece suit. Yeah. Which is something else that like a lot of comedians, male comedians, do. It would be funny rather than the thing. I would be making fun of a thing rather than being that thing myself. Fair enough. You know, too about three-piece suits, right? Mm. Stop me if this is, like, a bit weird. But, like, what I've noticed recently, you know, like, in uh, Hollywood is, like, a lot of actresses have come out as gay. Mm. And what I find is, like, where, the minute they seem to come out as gay, they start wearing suits. Like, I uh, saw so Ellen to Page... Events? To events? Like, Ellen yeah. Page did it. Raven Simone did it. There was another one who did it. I forget her name. But, like, there were three that sort of came out in the last sort of two years. And to be honest, there's not many, like, big female leads in Hollywood anymore. And so, like, those sort of girls who came out were just, like... They all sort of went like, I'm going to wear a suit. Is it like, do you think it's a weird thing that like, I have to define my sexuality for the press right away? I don't, I mean, I think coming out in public is a big deal even now, um, particularly for Hollywood, because Hollywood is conservative in that way. Like it is in some ways very, very liberal. Mm. In, in other ways, it has that conservative streak to it. 
there's a reason that, you know, whatever, 90% of blah are male roles, straight white men, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, you like how I just referenced the fact that we all know that there are those studies out there. Oh, yeah. Actually- all, those, all those goddamn studies. I actually saw an, um, a YouTube thing, uh, which was done by this African-American woman talking about the neglect of uh like minority writers in in sh- tv shows mm. so like you never see like strong minority characters a lot of the time and then the shows that you do see them they seem to dominate the cast yeah so like shows like blackish or like uh empire and shows like that like they're technically like black shows uh what about orange is the new black orange is the new like this she said like there's a couple exceptions and that's when they become good where it's just they're just characters in the world yeah they're characters in the world and they have a strong backstory like so like things like community are a good example of that and um yeah orange is the new black and um 30 rock and things like that had good and interestingly well like well written uh, minority characters but most of the time a minority, and it's not even like an African American. It can be like an Eastern European. It can be an, like an Asian family, or like an Asian person. They're always like the butt of the joke. Yeah. But they're never given any character traits. See, I thought, uh, I thought the interestingly in Sicario, I saw that movie with mm. um, Emily Blunt, who's she's got the amazing quality of looking. As my dad says, she always looks like she's thinking something, <laughs> which is a great quality, particularly for the character that she played. And I thought the character she played was really good strong female character insofar as she wasn't like a superhero Mm. she was weak and in various ways in various you know there's a point where she gets into a physical fight with a man and you can see that she's a good fighter and he still wins because he's a man and he's bigger than her Mm. like that's how kind of the reality of the world works and she doesn't not cry and she doesn't not throw up when things are horrible Mm. she's actually a strongly built character have you you seen uh, homeland no. That's a terrible show because it like that show should be called White Woman Cries because Claire Dane is the weakest person. She seems like a woman who's got a bit of authority, but she has to have like mental problems and has to use like her sexuality to her advantage and when it doesn't work out she breaks down and she breaks down every episode. Wow. And it like it is crazy how often. And it's just like and she just gets dominated by the men in her life. I can't speak to this, so I don't know if it's accurate or not. No, it's very accurate. I I'm not seen it. like if you see like Homeland is two things. It's very misogynistic towards Claire Danes and kind of racist, but still weirdly great TV. So, like so it hasn't stopped me from like cuz they're all flawed, so like you can't hate it. Despite the fact that you are uh, don't like this show or don't approve of its politics, you still watch it. You well, are like, the know. worst customer in the no, world. No, I'm the best customer because I'm like I'll take it no matter what. Like no, you're the worst because you're not you're not telling the market what you actually want. Ah, oh, the, the writer of Homeland could be listening to this, and they could later be like, "Well, you know that Nico guy. No, I should give him a job. You should give him a job. Anybody out there looking to hire somebody with radio skills and TV? I've written for TV in the past. Oh, you have written for TV in yes. the past, and uh, you know all of that. Hire Nico, or actually. Fuck Nico, hire me. No, how dare you? <laughs> You're the one getting corporate gigs, not me. Uh, that is not a corporate gig. That is the Copyright Symposium, I'll have you know. It's an important legal event in the copyright landscape. <laughs> you did a TEDx talk, didn't you? You don't get paid for that. Don't you? No. Well, that's a rip It's a scandal. Is it? Yeah. Like they don't of... pay, is that like a big that's thing? That's a thing, they don't pay. It's one of these things, the modern kind of aspirational intellectual you know kind of inspiration porn that they're actually they you know they're 
being this kind of holier than source for holier than thou ideas without mm. actually paying their performers. That's crazy. Um, so that's why they can generate some such high quality content. So. Man, so you didn't get you didn't get paid at all. You had to talk about like personal issues. Didn't have to. They didn't want me to actually. They oh really? Wanted me, they wanted me to talk about funny things. It was a, a real conversation where, um, so. Justine Rogers, who's mm. a lecturer at UNSW, a good friend of mine, we used to be in Aggressively Helpful together. She had done the Sydney TED at the Opera House. And she, and we'd sat down and, and I'd talked to her a bit and she and Jazz Twemlow wrote the majority of that speech. And, you know, she was talking about what angle she was going to take. And so when they referenced her to me, they were like, oh, we were thinking something like what Justine Rogers did. I thought, well, why would I do what my friend did yeah. less well than she would do it? Like... That's her thing. Her thing is like over-analytical deconstruction of, you know, social norms and, and particularly of group behaviours. That's what she's qualified in as an academic. And it's what she does really well as a comedian. Why would I do that? And they were asking me what I wanted to talk about. And I, at that time, was kind of obsessed or preoccupied with um, specifically the palliative care ward at St. Vincent's Hospital. Um and how people were behaving there and how people behaved in the face of death and how sort of offensive it was to me to walk out of there into King's Cross and see people who were building their lives around how good they looked on a Saturday night. you got to love King's Cross, though. Don't you got to love, like, the terrible people who go to those things? <sighs> when you say love... Do like you mean enjoy, enjoy, and, enjoy as them kind as of a Moliarean satirical, yeah, like, the world like as a pretentious hell. wanker. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because I, I recently have I told you about Mooseheads before? Mooseheads, as in the comedy awards? No, as in the great nightclub in Canberra. They're one and only. Oh, they have a nightclub. They have a four level nightclub called Mooseheads, and it's where every bad person in Canberra goes. I saw, some, like, I went down there two weekends ago, and I saw the best thing I've ever seen in the world. It was a groom and his best man who decided to cap off the night at Mooseheads while his bride sat in the gutter downstairs smoking a cigarette, still in a wedding dress. That epitomizes that place. Like, that is the best analogy for that place. Like, it is just disgusting people in the gutter wearing nice clothes while idiots dance upstairs not caring who's watching well maybe it was their special place well that's what we sort of came i was there with a couple of friends and my girlfriend and we decided like that's probably where they met or something because like who does that because everybody queued up to talk to this groom yeah because they saw him and they were like why is there a man in a tuxedo and then he said like oh it's, it's my wedding day i came here and then everybody lined up to ask and it was weird there was a line of maybe 15 guys who lined up to ask him the exact same question why are you at moose it's he's like oh, i want to be i that sounds like a piece of complicated performance art mm. It's genius. I loved it. I love that place to death. There's an ADF level, which is the bottom level of Mooseheads, and it is filled with like What's ADF? Australian Defence Force. Okay. Because that's where the big ADF, like Australian Defence Force bases are in is in Canberra, and so how do you know it's an ADF level? Is there because oh, they tell wire? you? Yeah, they tell you. Um, and my friend who lives in Canberra says this is the ADF level. You go down there, and it says ADF on yeah. the door, pretty much to get in. Uh-huh. And so like you walk down and it is mad. Like it is like maybe 50 to 70, very highly undersexed, very big, 
very aggressive males looking for females. But if no one is allowed in, if they're not ADS? No, you, anybody can go in. Uh, but the majority, like it's it's meant for like ADF get like discount. I don't know. It's, it's, for some reason, it's the ADF level. Uh, I never got to the reason why. Send Justine Rogers in; she'll figure it out. She, she, she should. That's what she's good at. She's an investigative journalist. No, she's a she's an well, she's a law professor, but her study is in like vaguely anthropological approaches to um, the norms in like legal culture. Yeah, but it's bizarre. That's what I'm saying. It's just, it's just bizarre. It's a bizarre place. Yeah. I love it. Because um, they're so, all bad. It's like King's Cross. That's, what, that's pulling it back full circle. It reminds me a bit of King's Cross, just on a smaller scale. Well, it, I, do, I don't like those places. Like, I don't enjoy them. Well, I don't like I'm clubbing. I'm interested in them. Um, but at that point in my life, when I was writing this TEDx talk, and they were like, can we just make it like a funny takedown of TED norms? And I was annoyed because... Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be doing something somebody else has done and would have done it better than I. And so I said, I want to talk about what I want to talk about. And they looked incredibly uncomfortable, but they let me do it. So uh, do you credit to them. Uh, Do you have difficult ideas? What do you mean? Okay, let's go back to your Hollywood women wearing tuxedos idea. Because that's a a borderline controversial, or at least it's treading on difficult turf as Mm -hmm. a white man to be commenting on what... Uh, what non-straight white, generally white women are doing. Although Raven's not white, is she? No, she's African American. Um, she's in the Cosby Show. So even worse. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait, even your, worse. What do you mean? Like that she's that African American, no, or just no? My... That you are passing comment on her choices in in sartorial couture. Why is it worse if she's African American? Because you're in a position of more uh, privilege compared with her. So she's on TV. Speaking. She has a lot more money than I would ever have. She's she could buy and sell me in like that. She could probably buy me for a thousand dollars. If she said, "I'll give you a thousand dollars and I can shit on you," I'd be like, "Yeah, probably." To be fair, you're into that. Um, <laughs> that okay. So backing up a few steps, why do you think that is a? Why does that trouble you? Well, it doesn't trouble me. It's just something I've noticed. But if it, you if it, if you've noticed it, it's something that troubles you, right? You don't notice things or you don't pay attention to things that that aren't meaningful. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I just find it an obscure thing because I, I just thought it was strange that suddenly because they have, have identified themselves as a lesbian, they have to prove it almost. And why? Okay. I think the interesting thing is why is wearing a man's suit the lesbian thing? Well, that's the thing. is just like that seems to be the, like what they think is like a lesbian thing. It's like lesbians don't have to dress in suits. Yeah. Like, you know, lesbians can wear suits. That's fine. They can wear fucking trash bags. I don't give a shit what you wear. Probably on the red carpet, wear something nice, though. Yeah. All I'll say is, like, make an effort, guys. So then it, it's an interesting thing. I, I would say... I think say, it's just an interesting zeitgeist. In a I, think it's an, I think it's got to do with the fact that they're in Hollywood, right? And so mm. people do not understand signals um, that aren't kind of visual signals. So if you go, oh, I'm not straight... Mm. That's an announcement that you've made, but it's like you've kind of doubling down on that announcement by using the visual signifier that has come to mean I'm a Hollywood lesbian, Mm. which is to wear a suit. I guess, but like, I, you know, I'm one of those people who just thinks like, like, again, like, um, most people don't care what sexuality you are. It's just those weird minority who are the loudest who are like, it's wrong. So like, I'm not one of those people who's like, I have to say anything about it to anybody, really. I don't know why I brought it up today. But it's just like, I've noticed it now. And it's just like, look, it's fine to me. I don't care. It's just something I have noticed. Like, Yeah. 
Well, it's an interesting thing. Do you have other difficult ideas than that? Um, not really. What, what, by difficult ideas, you mean like things I've noticed and I find bizarre? No, I mean things that you believe that you would have to explain to other people. Oh, uh, I sort of like, you know, like, oh, again, yeah, it's another sort of gay argument too. You know, people say like there's that slippery slope mm-hmm. and like if we let gays marry, then people can marry animals. Mm-hmm. Who cares? I'm just like, who cares if you marry a horse? Okay. So an argument for bestiality? Kind of, yeah. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I do that as a joke. I do it as a joke as well, but it's kind of like, I kind of don't care. You know, like... I could I'd be kind of pissed off if someone one day kidnapped my dog and said I'm married to her now because, you know, technically that dog is a slave of mine and I pay a lot of money for it. So yeah. it'd be like, you know, which is weird. You think about it, pets are technically slaves. Okay, now we're into interesting turf. Yeah, because you buy them and they're yours and you own them and your responsibility is to look after them until they die. Yeah, I would say part of the reason that it's okay or that we've accepted as a society that it's okay to have a pet... Mm is that we don't think they have the capacity to consent or not consent to that kind of behavior. So they're not a slave because they don't have that higher functioning capacity, yeah. which is also why you can't marry them. Yeah. Because they don't have the capacity to consent or not consent to things. All right, there you go. So if, if so bestiality you, is legal, then animal you, slavery should be illegal. Yes. Yes, okay. I'm on board with that. Yeah. So you're only allowed to have a pet if you're married to it and it consents. Yeah. Like... Can I bring up another difficult idea <laughs> that I've recently had? Yeah, sure. All right. You know how like it was Back to the Future Day recently? Mm-hmm. I think it was like or two days ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know how like everyone's been like, oh, we, like, where's my hoverboard? Mm. They're like, this is the future we need. Mm. Is it? Because like there's nothing different in this world, like really in the world, except Hologram and Jaws 19 exist and it's like, that's it. Like... Why isn't there like a movie where emulating we're like, oh, they've eradicated cancer. We should do after that. Yeah, where's my cancer-free society? Yeah. Or yes. like, you know, see like what movie I think we should emulate is Children of Men. You seen that movie? Yes, where yeah. there are no children. Yeah. Do you know why? Reason child. why? No pedophiles. Great quid poco. I think that that's a reaction to um, the misapprehension in our society about how many pedophiles there actually are. If you're willing to destroy all of the children of humanity... You can't have your cake and eat it too, okay? I'll just say that. You can have your cake. You can't eat a cake you don't have. What? <laughs> you can't eat your cake and have it too. Yeah. You can't... You cake. can have your cake and eat it too, because having a cake precedes eating a cake. You can't eat a cake you don't have. What if it's someone else's cake? Then you have to have it to eat it. The nature of eating is having. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. But what if you borrow the cake? You can't borrow a cake. Why not? Who says? Because if you eat it, you can't give it back. You can. It's just in poo. It's like a ghost cake, then. We're talking about difficult philosophical ideas. on That is podcast. a philosophical idea. What? Is food go- Is poo ghost food? It is not. Okay, there you go. It's not a, not a philosophical idea. It's just... Why is it not? It's a joke. That's yeah, it is a joke. The difference between I think, jokes I think it's, it's and a bit philosophical ideas. You just stole someone's joke on my podcast? Hell yeah. Do it all the time. That's interesting. Okay, so... Joke thievery is an interesting one. Can we yeah, get into that? Do I you often to, talk about this? I talked about it yesterday at the Copyright Symposium. Oh, did you? Yeah. What did, what did you say about it? I... Well, I mean, I was just talking about the nature of comedy being um, responsive and part of a conversation, but that it is... In the absence of like a really easy to enforce legal system, like I can't sue you if you steal my joke because it's too complicated and weird. 
but there is a like a, a social a set of social pressures so like first of all i made two points one was that there's a distinction between format and content mm-hmm. so like my dating tips format mm. someone else does dating tips they're not stealing my joke no because i took that format from someone else mm. you know uh but or equally, why do they call it X and not Y? Why do they call it Star Trek Deep Space Nine and not Keeping Up with the Cardassians? Mm. Why do they call it Beauty and the Beast and not Shaved by the Bell? All mm. of those f- formats are not stealing. But Is the- Shaved by the Bell a porno? No. Okay, should be. Uh, so the point being that there's a distinction between the form of a joke, hey, what's with blah is not stealing, but the, the blah is the bit that can be stolen. Um, and that's well recognised. And then in the secondarily, we kind of have a, a social shaming enforcement system where if you steal a joke, people will call you on it. And it's kind of a old yeah. school Wild West putting someone in the pillories situation. It's be like, to discuss this, I'm going to steal a bit from another comedian, weirdly enough. Paul F. Tompkins has a good, really it's good joke. It's not stealing if you... I'm referencing it, yeah. Um, Paul F. Tompkins has a really good bit about joke theory where he says, I don't care about joke theory because I don't do jokes. Mm. If you want, like, I do interesting, I, I do interesting stories from my personal, like, like perspective. If you, if you're worried about people stealing jokes, do more work. Because if you, if you can, if someone can repeat what you say in seven seconds, you're an idiot, essentially. Mm-hmm. Something to that effect, that's paraphrasing. But I think he's sort of right, you know, like you can't stop people from, you know, stealing your ideas because... Well, there's no copyright in an idea. No, exactly. There's copyright in the form of the idea, though. And I think if if you're getting up on stage and... Which is funny because that is contradictory to what I said about the way that... Well, well the reality of, of how people police joke stealing. How do people police joke stealing? People police oh, the idea that mm. when the idea is stolen, that's more offensive than when a format is stolen. Would you ever call someone out? Stolen. Like, I would not call someone out. I would get other people to call them out for me because I'm non-confrontational and because I feel yeah. like because I feel like the the element that's important when you have a joke stolen is to have the community on your side. I think I've called someone out once at a show oh. that I was emceeing, who went up and stole a joke. And it backfired on me. Really? What did you say? Um, I said, I won't say who it says, like, hey, hey, X, why does it better? Ah, uh, see, that wouldn't work because the audience wouldn't necessarily know whose joke it was. No, but it was mainly for him. For him and for, well, then I would have done it in private. Yeah, and I should have, like, it backfired on me. Because I, like, I was, like, maybe six months into stand-up at that stage. And I don't know why I was sitting in this room. <laughs> I was seeing this show. And I heard this guy do this joke. And I was like, that's a blatant copy. All right. Um, so how do you feel about... Do you feel that you would not mind if someone stole your jokes? Um, again, I'm going to do what I said earlier about the tea and coffee thing. I wouldn't mind. Of course I'd mind. Mm. Wouldn't, like, everyone would mind. It's like if someone stole my shirt. It's like, I understand if people, are, you know, can't afford a shirt, but I'd still be pissed off if it was my shirt, you know? like. Yeah, well, but I mean, as people often say when they steal movies and television and music, if I take your shirt, you still have a shirt when it comes to copyright. Yeah. So what, there's a, there's a difference there. They're like, that is, there is a difference. What's the difference between a shirt and a joke? Um, well, one's something you wear, one's something you tell. That's probably the biggest I mean, difference. I mean, I mean, ethically. Ethically, 
I think it's more... Do you think it is as bad to steal a joke as it is to steal a shirt? Or worse? I think it's worse to steal a shirt, mainly because it implies... Like, shirts... Someone owns a shirt, so you imply that... I don't necessarily agree. Because uh, if a joke... If I take your shirt, I'm not taking your identity. Are you going to steal my shirt? Is this... No, I'm going to steal your identity. (laughs) (laughs) I I once learned how to... The first and last step of identity theft. Mm -hmm. And a uni class, which I always thought was... It was a really... I remember it was the, one of the only few uni lectures I attended and paid attention to. Well, tell me about this, Nico, if that is your real name. Ooh, no, it's not. It's actually uh, Melvin. Melvin uh, Dongus. No wonder you changed it. Oh, it's a great name. How do you? My mum and dad, Dongus, <laughs> love me. This is not a podcast for jokes. Keep uh, talking. Okay, okay. Uh, anyway, so we had this guy who was a security... Head of security at a bank, like NAB or one of those places. And he said, you know... I'm going to tell you about identity theft because that's my job and I'm going to teach you like how it actually is a real thing because it was a course on like the internet or computers or something like that. And he just goes, all right, the easiest thing you can do to gain someone's identity is go and like get an identification which doesn't require a photo. Mm. So things like bank statements you can steal out of a bin Mm -hmm. or a uh, library card Mm -hmm. because... Now, that more often these days, people will have photo IDs with library cards. But back in like 2005 or 2007. Oh, the distant past. But, you know, they didn't. You know, mm. so like it's only become a recent thing that this has happened. So, like, Mainly because everyone followed this chap's pretty much. advice. Uh, pretty much. And so, like, you know, the first step is that. And then the last step is uh, driver's license. Mm. Because once you have a driver's license, then you're essentially that person. Because that's in a formal like, identification. And that's mm-hmm. probably one of the best ones we have except for a passport. And apparently what he did a couple of years ago is in, in the same course, um, he, he was in sitting in the lecture mm-hmm. and the tutor or the lecturer pointed out one student and he said like, what's your name? Give me a name and wait and your address. And he gave him his name and address. And a week later, that security guy came back and had like a credit card in his name or something like that oh, because wow. he he knew how to do it so well and he then he said i'm sorry like oh, obviously i'm not this isn't serious i'm just doing this as an example we cut this up and we'll keep it whatever you want to do it doesn't matter anymore um and he was essentially saying like look it's so simple he said like i can only teach you the first two steps and the last step i can't teach you like the middle six mm. or something like that it was like 10 steps or something like that and so, like, it was really interesting, though, because it was one of those things where you, you sit and you pay attention, you're like, maybe I might learn something how to get away with. Yeah. Have you ever like, because there was another time when I was, like, 15, and I played AFL for Western Suburbs, which was uh, sponsored by a locksmith company. And so, a lot, of our, a lot of our coaches were locksmiths. And I remember one day, our locker room was locked. Like, we couldn't get in, no one had a key. So, one of the coaches pulled out his lock-picking kit, and it like maybe 30, 15 year olds crowded around this guy to try and see how he picks a lock. Yeah. Just because I think like like the idea of crime was so alluring to us and like well, there it's is a cool that appeal. Skill. There's that appeal to stepping outside of society, which I think a lot of comedians feel particularly because we are in some ways outside of society. We're, we're on, in a liminal space. We're saying that we're an outside enough to have a good perspective on the inside, but we're inside enough to have a good perspective on the inside that's that's the position of the comedian right we can never really fit in mm. and i think i think the majority of comedians are people who don't think they could fit in if they tried and have made a virtue of necessity although i could be projecting yeah no i think that's true like i didn't fit in like at high school or anything like that i always found it like difficult because i think like 
I think that's the reason why most most people do become comedians is because you don't really have a voice, you know, growing up. So you're like, oh, I got a stage now. Now people have to listen to me. And like, it's weird because they might not be the funniest one at school. They're just the quiet. They might be the quietest one at school, but now they're allowed to speak and they have something funny to say. And they, they usually that guy who is the funniest at high school tries to do stand up and is just terrible at it. Because, like, you know... A lot of his jokes... Binzi and Earlsy come along and they're like, Oh, yeah, that's pretty funny, mate. Yeah, talk about that. But nobody else is getting it. Yeah. You know? Binzi and Earlsy. They're two... They're actually two friends of my girlfriend's dad's. That's legitimately their names. Or their nicknames. <laughs> Binzi and Earlsy. So, have you got any major regrets in your life? Um, no, I don't think you should have regrets in your life, to be honest. If you're happy with your life at the moment, which I am. Because mm. I feel like it's that weird thing of like, it's not, I'm not into like fate or anything like that, but I'm like, everything has sort of led me up to now. So, like, you know, I just like if I didn't do stand up, if I, if I didn't go to uni, I wouldn't have met my best friend. If I didn't meet my best friend, I wouldn't have gone to stand up. If I didn't get to stand up, I wouldn't have met you. And if I met you, I wouldn't get into radio. Aha, uh-huh, that's true. Uh, I yeah. did get you into radio. Yeah. And so, like, you know, it's one of those things of like, you know, I'm not, I don't really regret much. Maybe as a teenager, I did steal a bit of money. Um, I was quite mean and stole a bit of money from I was a little pickpocket when I was like 15 because of the the bad the slippery slope created by the locksmiths yeah pretty much and then I um but yeah like it didn't last long because mum caught me one day and was just like I'm gonna either take you to the police or you're gonna stop right now so I was like I'm gonna stop right now mum and uh yeah so like that was that that's probably the one thing I regret um, Do that, you, does thinking about it give you that really horrible sinking feeling in your tummy when you're like, no, because it's like resolved now. I actually, I do, I find myself doing this a lot where I play back terrible memories or like just awkward situations, and I find myself repeating what I should have said. Yeah, tell out me loud. about it. I did Will Anderson's podcast yesterday, and I was just so bad for about 15 minutes of what turned out to be like a two-hour podcast. So it was mm. okay, but it's right at the beginning where I'm just like. He's like, tell us who you are. And I'm like, I'm Alice Fraser. And then he just left this silence. And I was like, I am deliberately difficult to describe, which is the just the wankiest thing. And I, I literally was up till about three o'clock in the morning that night just being like, oh, oh, millions of people are going to hear that and just think I'm a, just the worst person. It was horrendous. Uh, it was horrendous. To be honest, though, I... Um Alexi, my best friend, said one of the best things I've ever heard, actually. He said, um, we're talking about, I said something like, oh, it's pretentious. He goes, well, it's creative. Of course it's pretentious. Which I thought was a really nice quote because like, yeah, everything creativity is is essentially pretentious because you're like, this is me. Mm. Like, get ready for me. Here I am. Yeah. There you go. And like, so like, yeah, it is going to be pretentious. You yeah. Know? Or every comedian should basically come on stage in a turtleneck and go, so here's what I think. Yeah. Like Andrew Wolf describes it. Like, Enter it's, my world. Andrew Wolf's like another comedian says like, oh, it's just white guys complaining about things that they've just experienced. So like. I resent that uh, as a white guy. Um, no, I, that's what it can be, I think. Well, that's what a lot of it is. Well, the, uh, the, God, I got this. I'm doing Coogee next week, the Coogee Comedy Club um, that Gary Bradbury runs. Never met him. And I'm doing it with Steve Hughes. Oh, yeah. And the first comment on the website is like, Alice equals cute, Steve Hughes equals awesome. Oh, wow. To some person I've never met. That, that's that's, that's got to be on your next poster. And I'm like, just... You've, somebody who's clearly never seen me do performing... Yeah. Like it's it's not 
like proper oppression, but yeah. it is kind of exhausting. You're not wrong though. You are kind of cute. Uh, yeah. uh, you can't say that. You're like half my age. Half your age. I'm, I think I'm four years younger than you. Yeah. yeah. Eat, eat a dick. Eat a dick. Uh, oh, how dare you? How very dare you? Uh, so. So. What are we talking no about? No major regrets. No, but I do play a lot of things back in my mind and go, well, I fucked that one up. Yes. But I think I, that's how you learn. I do think shame uh, is an underutilized part of our society. Yeah. More but people should be shamed. I think, I think especially kids. I think kids should be shamed a lot more than they are. Because I used to work in after school care, right? And kids get away with a lot of shit. Yeah. And like, was I talking about you with you this the other day about like coddling? Young yeah, children. I was talking to you about the anti-fragility principle, which yeah. is the idea that like bones grow stronger if you put them under pressure, and they grow weaker if you don't put them under any pressure. And I'm not saying you should like fucking hate a kid or like just berate them every day of their life. I'm just saying like when a kid does something well, bones wrong, bones also break if you put them under too much. Yeah, pressure. but like yeah. exactly. So like what you shouldn't, what you should do is like you know just if a kid does do something like outrageous or wrong. It's fine to have a go at them about it. And, like, that was a big thing at, like, the upper school care was, like, you always be like, well, you're not their parent. You're just a guardian for the, you know, for four hours or however long. I think it was four hours. However long it was till their parents loved them again. Exactly. Well, come on. They were probably working. So, like, fair enough. But, like, you know, the, the kids who... I was saying this. The kid, this is a weird idea, too. Uh, the kids who were seemed to be the, the softest is probably the for lack of a better term, the softest, mm. were the kids whose parents were, or his, his, at least mum, was like at least in her 40s and was like, this is my last chance child. Mm-hmm. And so like, and she was like, it is the most precious thing to me. It must be safe at all times. I have to look after my baby. And then this kid goes into a wider world of school where there's older kids than him who are physically bigger and all of a sudden he might play a game like, you know, Bull Rush or something and he gets knocked down and it is just the most horrible waterworks and screaming you hear and you're like, you're not, you're not hurt, you're fine, you've just had a small knock, you've got to get back up and you can keep playing. Or like they'll get tipped and they'll be like, this is bad, I don't want to get tipped. And you're like, look, that's going to happen, the game's called tips, you know. And to me it was, it was those kids who were like that miracle child who was sort of more... Yeah, they're more likely to, you know, do that. So that they haven't met with enough... Knock. Force. Yeah, they haven't had enough strain. It's like anybody, you know, like, you see all those, like... Uh, my girlfriend was recently telling me about this uh, this girl who joined her work who apparently said to her, like, oh, my parents just bought me a new Wrangler and they just paid for me to go to America. And apparently on her second day at this law office, was like, I can't believe you do this. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And it literally is... What my girlfriend describes as the most dull, boring, easy work you can anyone can do because it's it is essentially just data entry. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why it is agonizing. But. Yeah, but she, you know, it's one of those things though, and it was just like, yeah, like those people who just are like a co- mollycoddled into like just have no sort of backbone and sort of just don't know how to like react when life gives puts a bit of pressure on them. Mm. But those are the sort of people that are fantastic in the world too, which I like. They're the sort of people that are at King's Cross, and that's. And I can't hate them. You can't, can't hate, hate them, them, but you can be like frustrated by them. So you you take pleasure in some level of shitness. It's in sort the of world. Sh- like sh- was it Schadenfreude, or whatever it's called. Schadenfreude. Yeah, like it's sort of that. Like I like shit people. 
because shit they people... They make you feel good about yourself. Exactly. And not much <laughs> does. Like, I find a lot of comedians intimidating who are better than me. I'm like, wow, you're very, like, good. And, like, I feel like I'm not up to... to I'm not worthy to talk to you. Mm. But those shit people, like, I can talk to them and sort of have a bit of joke with them. Yeah. And, like... See, that's interesting. But it's not making... It's, I don't want to mock them. Because I don't want to... shift. Your sense that other comedians are better than you and something to be in awe of mm. will shift the moment you start getting people below you come up and start looking at you with stars in their eyes. And then you'll realise everyone is just people. Well, that's why I always like those comedians who, like, don't treat you like you are an underling or, like, you're not up to their level. Because I'm... You know, guys like Cam Knight have always treated me with, like, a lot of... And, like, Ray Badrin mm. have always, like, given me the time... Same with John Cook. I've always given me the time of day. And been like, hey, look, like, if I want to talk to them, they'll have a chat with me. So let's go to this. This is quite a serious issue. How do you need the time of day when we live in a world where everyone has a phone? Not more the time of day. It's like, <laughs> I'll be at a show and they'll be at a show. And rather than ignore me or talk to another comedian, they'll say hi to me and they'll, you know, they'll have a conversation with me. That's nice. Because, like, a lot of times... And, like, I don't blame comedians for this because I don't know a lot of them very particularly well because, like, I, I'm sort of, you know, taken aback to, like, a lot of them. So, like, just there's some people I won't just walk up to and be like, hey, we should, you know, like, how are you, you know? Because I find that very confronting mm. anyway because I'm not great. I'm very awkward with interaction anyway. But, like, those guys, like, those comedians who are bigger than me that will come up to me and say, oh, how like, oh, how you going, man? What's going on? And I'll be like, oh, man, thank you so much for this. Like, I feel like you shouldn't have to, but thank you. And I'll... And I'm always quite, like, I'm always sort of reserved in my conversation with them. Mm. Like, I know I'm gabbering on now. Yes. Which is weird, because, like, I can do this. But yes. with those guys, I'll be like, I've got to hold back and be like, I'm not, I don't want to talk their ear off. Yeah. You want to be cool. Yeah. I want to seem like, oh, yeah, I know what you're saying. I, I could inject, but I, I don't need to. the one thing that I realized in my life that was worth a lot was that everybody's uncomfortable all the time. And that to let other people see how uncomfortable you are is a is a disservice. If you can, like, just be just make them comfortable, and everything's okay. Yeah. If you think of the of the object of an uncomfortable situation as making them feel comfortable, mm. your own discomfort goes away. I do. I remember at uh, the FBI uh, Christmas party last year. I I, I was at the dance like that weird warehouse thing and. I remember I was in the line for the bathroom and this girl came up to me and she said, oh, what do you do at FBI? And I said, I'm sorry, I have anxiety. Because I freaked out because she was very good looking. <laughs> and like, but also no, like, she was like, she seemed very cool because I think she was in that band Little May or something. And I was just like, I know who you sort of are. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say I have anxiety? Yeah, I said very clearly. To, I was like, I have anxiety. That's what I do at FBI. I'm the anxiety guy. Yeah, it's like, I have anxiety. I'm sorry. And I was just like, She's like, I'm so, and I was just like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, uh, I do. Tra- I'm producer for tracksuits, and I was like, I'm so sorry. And she's like, it's okay, but it sort of killed the conversation because, like, it was just like, I'm weird. Hello, bye. Yeah. You know. Whereas if you'd been like, what do you do at FBI? Yeah, I'd be like, oh, I do. I'm the producer. I said, what do you do? Yeah. She's like, oh, I'm in a band. I was like, oh, what's your band, little mate? Oh, I've heard of you before. You're great. Yeah. You know. You know, oh, you date the program director. Fantastic. I really like that guy. You know, like, yeah. you know, something like that. You're like, I could have happily done that. But instead, I just yelled, I have anxiety. Because, like, <laughs> I was sober and sort of new to FBI. And, like, I'm, I don't deal well when I'm sober at a party. And I don't know too many people. Because I feel like I have to have an interesting backstory then. Well, I would say, on the bright side, I got a lift home because you were sober. <laughs> yeah. So it's all turned out well in well the Well done, end. yeah. 
All right. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, I don't have Facebook. Sorry, I, don't, I do have Facebook, but I don't have Twitter. Just go to Greenlights Comedy Nights, um, the Facebook page. Greenlights like Comedy Nights Facebook page. Hit Nico up. Because uh, my name on Facebook isn't my real name because I don't like people. You don't like people. I don't, I don't interact with people on Facebook very often. It's only when... Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It's unusual for your generation to not have Twitter and to not be available on Facebook. Yeah, I don't have anything. I don't have any interesting thoughts. I don't have any original thoughts. Well, that's we, know, we, that's, we discussed that earlier. Um, <laughs> you that's what my sister's ex-boyfriend beef. always used to serve me. I have no original thought because I'm born after the 90s. I'm born in the 90s. Oh, well, your sister's ex-boyfriend is a dick. I'm no, he is, she's not no, going he was, out with him anymore. No, he was lovely. He was the best guy. He was very funny. Do you know Nikos Andronicus? Yes. It was him. He was, he, was, he was just having a joke. It's, a, it's the idea that like nobody in the 21st century has an original idea. That's what he was essentially saying. Well, all language is a quotation. I said that at the Copyright yeah, Symposium. That's a real quote. That's a legitimate quote. That's from Bruce Gardner, uh, who used to lecture at Sydney University. The idea that every word you've ever heard, you heard originally in a different context from the one you're using it. So every single word you ever use is a quote. What about squish Yeah, I'm going to cut that bit. Oh. You're having tea with Alice. <laughs>